Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6? We need two nursery workers. Any volunteers that would be led to do that? Please go see Phil Gastonell. Thank you. Well, hello up there. Cheap seats. <laughs> There's room down here now if you want to come down and... Safer up there? <laughs> John chapter 6. Carol Mayall records in one of her books a letter that she received from a woman named Sherry. And Sherry wrote these words. The preceding year has been in many ways the worst year I've ever experienced. And yet one of the most glorious in terms of personal growth, as I am beginning, and I hope you heard that, beginning to understand the depths of God's infinite, intense love that He has for me. I think that's true for all of us, isn't it? We are all in the beginning of understanding that. How do you ever understand infinite love? It's been a year I would never have wished on myself, but one I would not trade for anything. Last year I wrote to you of my discovery of how God was more concerned with molding my character and conforming me to the image of Christ than he was in giving me a comfortable, worry-free life. Little did I know that he was about to enroll me in a crash course of character building. Now, beloved, I don't know about you, but when I hear something like that, my ears perk up. Maybe I'm just a little nosy. I want to know what happened. Don't you? Well, Sherry continued to write, and she said this. She shared that her mother, whom she loved very deeply, had two heart attacks was hospitalized and was not expected to live the night. Incredibly, the mother rallied and in a few days was sent home. And then she suddenly died two days later. Her father, in his grief, came to live with them. Spent a little time with his family. While he was there with them, he had a stroke. Her husband, realizing that the two of them needed a bit of a break, suggested, let's go for a ride on our bicycles. They had a dual bicycle, you know, those two people things. And so they were off riding their bike, and incredibly, the front front fork broke in half and catapulted the two of them headfirst over the handlebars. Being a good hubby, he broke her fall. She fell on him. But in the process, he broke his collarbone. The collarbone stubbornly refused to heal, and it was months and months of pain and therapy. To add insult to injury, one week into his senior year in high school, their oldest son had a grand mal seizure. He was taken to the hospital. They ran some tests, and they found that he had developed a case of epilepsy and would be on medication for the rest of his life. The young man, as many young men will be, was a little headstrong about this new injury, this new disease, and decided to rebel against taking the medication. And then with his mother's promptings, continued to rebel even further. It's a tough year. Sherry writes these words, As I reflect back over this year, I can't help but hope that God is planning a nice long summer break for me for this course in Character Building 101. But even if it continues, I've seen enough of God's faithfulness and provision and the tremendous good that can come out of the bad to know that I can trust Him to lead me through anything that He allows to come my way. I would pick for myself a nice, easy, uneventful existence. But in God's limitless creativity, He selects for me exciting adventures that stretch the very limits of my faith. Whoever thinks that being a Christian is dull and boring, quote, ain't never put their hand in God's and walked with Him. And I pity their loss.
Think about that, beloved. That lady lost every support system she had. She lost mom to death. She lost dad to a stroke. She lost hubby, who's probably the most intimate prop she has. Then she loses her son. Every resource she had just being taken away. Carol Mayall, in response, wrote these words, stripped, taken down to the very root of her bruised soul. And why? That God may rebuild her and fashion her to be like him. I hope you heard the words, beloved. I would choose a very easy and uneventful existence. But in God's limitless creativity, he selects for me exciting adventures that my faith may be stretched and that I may know him. Those of you who've been through much the same thing, I'm sure would echo these words. Wonderfully painful. Painful because it's no fun to be stripped and emptied. But wonderful because it's great to know him intimately. And that is the lesson of John chapter 6 that you and I have been seeing over these last several weeks. And to be honest with you, I didn't really understand that for a lot of years. For a lot of years when I looked at the Gospel of John and especially this passage, I saw it just as a miracle. Jesus feeding the 5,000 and saw, and, and saw his deity and saw his power at work. And so the people marveled and said, man, what an awesome God. Feeds 5,000 people on two biscuits, five biscuits and a couple of fish. Several years ago, though, Father opened my eyes to what was really going on here. And I trust he's been opening your eyes as well. Because this is not just a miracle. You and I have seen over the last several weeks that our Jesus is systematically and methodically stripping his disciples of every resource they've got. Our Jesus has given them a task for which they cannot meet it. It is an impossible task. We would put it this way, our Jesus is emptying the disciples of all of their resources so that they will have only one recourse, and that is to run to a person, and that person is Jesus. I believe as we come to study this today, you and I need to pray that our Father would open our eyes just like he was opening the disciples so long ago. So would you do that with me? Our Father, what an incredible privilege to open up this love letter, this very precious possession, which teaches us about life. And Father, our prayer is that your Holy Spirit would capture our entire being so that we can learn the lessons of this passage. Father, without your working, we will not gain in under, any understanding at all, so our dependence is upon you. Father, this is the only gospel, the only miracle recorded in all four gospels that tells us that it's very special. The gospel of John is the only one that records the sermon that followed. We are in for something very special when we open these pages, Father, but only if you open our eyes. We pray that you would do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Scott, could you very graciously ask them to quiet down a little bit in there? That's a little distracting for us. Hit these rooms if you could. I hope you understand, too, that is a very hard job for those teachers. They have got a lot of kids in a little tiny room. So uh, please pray that building committee gets going here. In the interest of time, we're going to have a very brief review this morning. We've seen over the last several weeks that our God can do anything. There is nothing that is too difficult for our God. That's a great truth. We have also seen that our God loves us. And you and I need to know that. Because in this life, this is a sin-cursed world, we're going to get buffeted. 
We're going to have hurts. We're going to have unmet expectations. We're going to have things come our way that we'd really rather not have come our way. And if you and I don't understand that our God can do anything, and if you and I do not understand that God loves us, then we are going to look at these circumstances and we're going to be led to despair. But when you and I understand these two truths, then we know that our God could have stopped whatever has come our way. But he has chosen not to. Why? Because impossible circumstances drive us to him. And one of the hardest truths that you and I have to learn about being a son or a daughter of Adam is that by nature, in our flesh, we do not run to him. We are prone, living in a physical world where we can see, taste, and touch, to look to physical answers for impossible circumstances. When a circumstance comes our way, one of the first things that we tend to do is we will look inward to our own strengths, our own wisdom, our own resources. And sometimes that works. But sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't work, then we're prone to look outward to other people's resources. There's somebody else out there that's got greater wisdom or greater resource or more money than I have, and they can minister to me and bail me out of this. And sometimes that works. But sometimes it doesn't. And thirdly, we said that when that happens, we tend to look earthward. And what we meant by that is that we seek an escape. We seek a diversion. We'll stuff it down so deep that we just don't think about it. We'll become a workaholic and bury ourselves in our work. We'll, we'll go, go into the bedroom and pull our covers over our head because bed is a wonderful place when you get impossible circumstances. And we live in denial. Or we lock ourselves into an entertainment mode, put our mind in neutral and just refuse to think about what's come our way. Sometimes it works. But most times, you will find that it doesn't. And so what our God does is in His marvelous love, He gives us a circumstance that you and I cannot apply these three coping mechanisms to. Because He knows that as long as you and I are appropriating these coping mechanisms, we are settling for second best. We're settling for our strength, or the strength of our friends. Or we're settling, we're settling for diversionary lifestyle. That, that this is, uh, we're never going to come to know Him as God. So what He does is He'll send us this circumstance to strip us of these three resources, so that then we can run to Him, and running to Him in that impossibility, we will find Him to be God. And that is wonderful. And I trust you hope you know, beloved, that that is not a punitive act on the part of our God. That is not to punish us. But he knows that we are settling for second best, and he wants only the best for us. And the best is himself. This is really what's happening to the disciples in John chapter 6. We saw that the disciples were here on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They are tired and they are weary. They are in need of a break. There are so many people around, the text said they didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus took the disciples and headed off by boat four miles across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side. There they went up onto a mountain and had some solitude together. The crowd, however, recognizing a good deal with Jesus, the miracle worker, follows. By the time they get to him, it's 5,000 men. No telling how many women and children, probably a crowd of thirty to 40,000 people. Jesus sees the crowd coming to them. The very crowd they're trying to get away from. And he has compassion upon them. And he turns to Philip before he goes to minister to this crowd, and he says, hey, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And then he let Philip fry. And he went down and he ministered all day long. And Philip, in his answer, as we saw, said, 200 denarii just to give him a snack. Six months' wages, we don't have it. And he's a very frustrated and perplexed man. Where did he look? He looked inward to his own resources. Jesus stripped them of that. Please own that. Jesus is the one who did this to Philip. Jesus dumped this in his lap. He could have just snapped his fingers and fed them, but he chose not to. Strike one. He's not a man to remain frustrated by himself, he tells the disciples. And we saw last week that the disciples now are in despair, and they all come to Jesus as a group and said, you can't do this. Don't you know that it's dark? Don't you know that we're in a desert place? 
And they're telling the one who knows all things that he knows nothing. Don't you know? Don't you know? He was the one who brought him there in the first place. He was the one who didn't let him earn any money. Their answer? Get rid of the crab. Send him away. Let him go fend for themselves. Out of sight, out of mind. Where, where are they trying to cope? Right there. Escape. Diversion. Jesus will not let them do that. Okay. Don't send them away. You feed them. They dump it right in there. Okay. It's really a holy hint. Obviously, then, they had a resource that they simply were not thinking of. The resource, of course, was him. The problem, though, is that the circumstance that's looming upon them is so big that they only can see the problem and not the person of God. And that's a standard problem for the children of Adam, isn't it? Do you realize that in our study of these four passages, in not one of the four accounts does one of the disciples say, Lord, help? Not one of them asks for help. Doesn't that blow your mind? Feed 30 to 40,000 people. Go do it. Not one of them says, help, Lord. Not one of them says, well, Lord, what do you mean by all this? And even none of them even calls it into question. They don't see Jesus. They see the problem, and they see themselves. And if you'll turn over to Mark 6, we'll pick it up from there. Mark chapter 6, we'll start in verse 36. The disciples go to Jesus and say, send them away that they can go into the country roundabout and into the village and find some food somehow. They got nothing to eat. I hope you just saw the end of that phrase. They have recognized that the people in the crowd have nothing to eat. Why? Because they've been there all day. Remember, we said it was biblical to teach until it's late, dark, and everybody's hungry. And it's late and dark, and everybody's hungry. Jesus says to them, verse 37, no, you give them to eat. I'm not going to let you do this. You can't escape this one. Not going to let you run away. And you've got to look at their answer, gang. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? That is incredible, beloved. They are still offering to do it. Their answer is fraught with difficulty. First off, they got no money. We can search the scriptures and take the time to do this. We're not going to. But this is a poor little band of men that often had to scrounge for food. Two, Jesus took them to a desert place. Even if they had the money, there was no place to buy it. There were no 24-hour markets. Thirdly, it's dark. And in those days when it got dark, the shopkeepers barred the doors and bolted them because of thieves. When it was dark, shopping was over. See you tomorrow. Fourthly, it's too much food to carry for 12 men anyway. I've seen some of you at the market. Shopping for your own families. And you can't carry the food for your own family. 12 men are going to go scrounge the countryside and bring back food for thirty to 40,000 people? It's an utter impossibility. Besides, I've got to ask this question. When God feeds people, does he give them a snack? What did God do with the children of Israel in the wilderness? He gave them manna. How much manna? Gather as much as you, what? Need. He gave them their fill. When they had their fill of manna and were sick of that and wanted quail, how much did God give them? He gave them their fill. <laughs> yeah, and so much they got sick. Died. When they were looking for fish, and they couldn't catch any, and Jesus said, hey, cast your net on the other side. How many fish did they get? So much fish, they had to drag the net to shore. Listen, when God feeds people, he doesn't give them snacks. Do you realize what's happened here? God has set the stage. Jesus has done this. He has set things so that he is the only one that can meet the need, but they're still willing to try. Now, when you meditate on this, one thing i got to say to this is you've got to admire their desire. I mean, you've got to admire their sincerity. 
Think about this. Why have they gone to the desert place in the first place? Because they're tired and they need a break. But they're willing to sacrifice themselves and go knock on doors around the countryside, borrow, buy what little they could, beg, carry the food back, and distribute the food. They're going to say no to their own need for rest. Isn't that exciting? You've got to admire that kind of desire. But I hope you realize they're willing to burn out for God. Did you hear that phrase? They are willing to burn out for God. And that is dumber than dumb. That is dumb, 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 dumb. And i got to tell you something, beloved, that is one of the common phrases in the evangelical church today. Let's go burn out for God. That is dumb. Why don't you think about this with me? What does Jesus Christ in John 15 call you to do with him? He said, you are a, what? Branch. And I am the vine. You abide in me. And what am I going to do for you, Jesus says? I'm going to abide in you. Let me ask you this. Does the life of God ever burn out? Does the life of God ever burn out? No. So why are Christians running around trying to burn out for God? That's something God has never called people to do. God has called you to abide in Him and He will burn in you all your life. When a person burns out for God, I hope you realize all they have done is manifested on the outside their internal attitude in the economy of God. They've been depending on who? Themselves. Thank you. You want to know what the analogy is? The burning bush. What made that burning bush so unique that Moses turned and had to look at it? It was on fire, but what was happening? The bush wasn't burning. Well, how was this accomplished? What was in the bush? The presence of God. Where is the presence of God in the new covenant economy? He's in you. You are the burning bush. You realize that? You're just a bush. But you got fire inside you. And the pro- all you and I got to do is release that fire. We got to let God burn, not us. Look at these guys. I want you to think about this. They are willing to struggle. What did Jesus call people to in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30? Come to me, all you that are struggling, and what? Yeah, I'll give you rest. They are willing to carry the burden of feeding all these people. What's Jesus call you to do with your burdens? Cast them on him. Great analogy of this was told by a pastor who said he was moving his study from downstairs to upstairs. And he's carrying all his volumes up to his new library upstairs. And his little three-year-old girl said, Can I help, Daddy? And he said, Of course. So she's carting up little paperbacks. Well, the paperbacks are gone pretty soon, and now all you got is the big theological volumes. So he's upstairs arranging the books, and he start, hears his little daughter crying on the stairway. He comes down to investigate. Why are you crying, honey? I can't carry this book up. He says, Tell you what we're going to do. You hold the book, and I'll carry you upstairs. That's the idea? That's new covenant economy. When the impossible burden comes your way, hang on to it, gang. But let God burn. Let God carry you. These guys are not willing to do that. They are saying, we will take care of this. Now, how are we to explain this? They're going to try to solve an impossible circumstance, even if it kills them. Four years ago, when I taught this, I meditated and meditated and prayed and prayed, and this is the only solution I could come up with. We've got here the dense disciples. They are going to try to solve an impossible circumstance with their own resources, which Jesus has already stripped them of. 
He has already shown them they can't. They've already admitted they can't. What did they say two verses earlier? Send this crowd away, we can't. But now they're going to try. That's sick. They're a few sandwiches short of a picnic. The light's on, but nobody's home. The oven's on, but there's nothing in there. A few oars short of a rowboat or whatever else. Any others? Do you all have the idea? This is thick. And there's plenty of scriptural support for this. In John 14, Jesus said some marvelous things to them. And what did Philip say? Show us the Father and that will suffice. And what's Jesus say? Oh, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know who's in front of you? If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father, and that's the first time Oive ever entered into the Hebrew language. She said, Oive, Philip, how long must I be with you? John 4, they go off to buy food. They come back. Jesus ministered the Samaritan woman. They say, eat, Master. He says, I'm full. Who fed the Master? See, they missed it. They don't understand. My favorite is Acts chapter 4 when they prayed for Peter. Remember that? Peter's in prison. The saints are praying. What's God do? He answers the prayer. Peter goes over and knocks on the door. Lady runs the door. Ah! It's Peter! Runs in and tells everybody. What do they say? You're crazy. Can't be Peter at the door. Thick. And you and I can relate to this, Right? Scripture says that without the Spirit of God, you and I are spiritually brain dead. The only way a natural man can understand the things of God is if the Spirit of God reveals them to him. However, that was the best conclusion I could arrive at. I've had four more years of dealing with people. And dealing with myself, I include myself in that. And I want to add another possibility to explain their persistence. I trust you understand that three of these four years have been spent here. (laughs) But I'm including myself in this. You do understand that, right? Right? Please please do that or I'm in trouble. Could it be that maybe they weren't so dense, but maybe that they were defiant? Men who in their pride refused to admit their weakness and in their pride continued to try to control their circumstances of their life and the lives of everyone else around them? We do that. I'm convinced, beloved, that none of us, and I mean none of us, really understands the depths of our pride until God gives us a circumstance that we cannot handle. And then in our running to and fro, it manifests to us how independent of God we really live. And this is all of us. we got some common denominators here. We all have flesh, we all have pride, but praise God, we all have Jesus. Now, I don't know. Bottom line, we really don't know. Maybe they were dense, maybe they were defiant. Maybe they were dense and defiant. (laughs) But in any event, they refused to acknowledge the impossibility of the situation that's before them. So if you'll notice, Mark 6, Jesus intervenes. Shall we go and buy this food, Lord? Verse 37, and he says unto them, How many loaves do you have? How much food have you got? Go and see. Hope you understand that. Jesus now gets them to look outward. Jesus sends them through the crowd. Jesus sends them on journey through the crowd to see how much food is there. 
To show them the utter impossibility of the situation. If 30 to 40,000 people can't provide, you 12 certainly aren't going to provide. You know, when you read the account in John 6, we're not going to take the time to turn there, Andrew shows up and says, hey, I've got this little boy with five loaves and two fish. It almost makes it sound like this was Andrew's idea. But it's not. That's not what's happening. The Mark account very clearly tells us that Jesus is the one that sent him through the crowd. And that's how Andrew ended up with those five loaves and two fish. He says, go. And off they go. Now, I've got to tell you something, beloved. This is an occasion where you and I cannot be content to just read this. To fully experience what's going on here, you've got to kind of enter in and, and feel what they feel. Okay? So I'd like all of you to stand up. And I'm going to give you four possibilities. And when you get to the one that fits you, you can sit down. It is very possible that some of the disciples, and we'll say some of us, because they are just like us and we are just like them, amen? amen. Some of you are not convinced. We are just like them, right? Amen. Okay, thank you. And so it's very possible that some of us would have started off in this group. Don't sit down yet. Very optimistic. This is the group that would have gone out there and said, when Jesus says, go amongst the crowd and see what, you've got, what they've got. Great idea. So that's it. They've got food. <laughs> They're hoarding this food. Jesus is going to teach them community spirit and teach them to share. What a great, that's why he's the master. I got, that's gotta be it. Or maybe, maybe they thought this. I know what the Lord wants us to do. We're gonna take a collection. And then we're gonna go try and buy food. Cause if we get enough money, I mean those shopkeepers will open their shops even if, you know, we can offer more. Even though it is dark. And, and so this is the optimistic crowd. If this is you, would you please sit down? Oh, my God, pray for this church. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> See, now there's a spirit of control right there. We want to know the choices. <laughs> there's a second possibility, and this is a pessimistic group. Don't sit down yet. This is a group that when Jesus said, go out there and get the food, would have trudged off, bearing the burden, saying something like this, this is never going to fly. This is a proverbial lame duck. What a waste of time. If I... <laughs> Pray for hope. If we'd only sent them away when we had a chance, they could have been gone. We could have found some food for ourselves. But now, no, it's late. No, not this time. Nobody listens to me, even though they should. So I'm right about these things, you know. It takes organization and planning to pull this off. And we've got neither, because nobody's consulted me. <laughs> if you find yourself in this crowd, would you please sit down? Wow, we lost a lot on that one. Okay. Let's try this one. We call this one the confused and courageous bunch. Now, this is a group that basically would have said, well, okay, Lord, I don't understand it. I mean, I know we don't have any food, and I don't think it's going to work, but you said to, so I'm going to try, and... I'm going to trust you, but boy, it's a tough one, and you're just confused, but you're courageous. You're going to trust God. Do you fit that group? <laughs> I tricked you. You 
See, this group says, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to go do it. I think there is a last group, and that's the group that would have just looked at the circumstance and said, there's no way. And run to him and just said, Lord, there's no sense even trying. Only you. It's, it's impossible for me. Only you. And hurled yourself at his feet and cast yourself on his goodness and his mercy in an utter reckless abandon. I think, to be sure, that many of us find ourselves in all three of these modes at various times, depending on the circumstance. But human nature, I think if we take an honest look at ourselves, very, very few of us find ourselves there. At least not until we've exhausted all the other resources. The sad but true fact is that when a difficulty comes, most of us look to everywhere but to him. Now, some of us, I'm sure, have still not entered into this situation. And so I want to help you. I have it from a very disreputable source that the guy that was going to provide the crawfish for today did not provide them. Now, if you look around the room, this is a lot of people. And we have a lot of people from the first service still, right? Okay, so Robbie Wilson, would you please stand up? Robbie, I think that somewhere in this crowd, there is enough crawfish <laughs> to feed all these people. Now, Robbie, I charge you before God to go through this crowd and find enough crawfish to feed all these people. Now, Robbie, what I'd like you to do is go row by row and ask each side, do you have any crawfish? Okay? Would you start and work your way to the back? Real loud, please. No, no, no. Row by row, brother. Row by row. So over here, if you would, please. Does anybody here have any crawfish? Robbie, how do you feel? Foolish. <laughs> Are you optimistic at all, Robbie? Uh, no. Okay. Would you work your way down the second and third rows there and just keep going, if you would? Robbie, uh, not anything we need, crawfish. Uh, I think he's getting pessimistic. Are you starting to feel what the 12 disciples felt, Robbie? I think so. Okay, would you keep going here, if you would? Okay. We can put it in the crawfish, right, Kevin? Okay, good. Uh, Are you getting optimistic now, Robbie? You found an onion. Uh, uh, <laughs> any crawfish? Anything down this aisle? Any crawfish down here? Any crawfish on this aisle? Oh, you find something? <laughs> Are you optimistic now, Robbie? No, still not, huh? <laughs> Why don't you just ask the rest of the crowd and we'll finish this up? Anybody have anything, any crawfish, anything? Thank you. Cake. We got a cake. <laughs> Robbie, why don't you come on up here if you would? I got a question for you. Okay. You know, I asked you to find enough crawfish to feed the whole crowd and... You know, you've only come up with one. And uh, it's a Vidalia onion, incidentally, so you can probably eat that. But, uh, you know, you've really let us down. How do you feel, Robbie? Well, uh, I tried. <laughs> I did what you asked. Have a seat, Robbie. Give Robbie a hand. That's, uh, 
Now you feel what they felt? You know what the amazing thing to me is? In Luke 9, the other account, we don't have time to turn there. After they go through the crowd, they come back saying, we got five loaves and two fish. Guess what they say? Lord, we've got five loaves and two fish. Ready for what they say? Do you want us to go try to buy some more? I'll try. Listen, beloved, when God brings you an impossible circumstance, the issue is not for you to try. The issue is for you to run to Him and cast yourself in dependence upon Him. And the one thing that I would leave you with in terms of an application here is the pride of man, right here at the bottom. They're still trying to solve an impossible circumstance that they have no possibility of solving. They are like the energizer that just keeps on going. And so our Lord is going to have to intervene next week. I don't know why they're so slow. Maybe today, like we call it ADD or something. They just can't get it. Well, John 6, Andrew shows up with the five biscuits and two sardines. They've looked inward at strike one. They don't have the resources. They tried to get rid of them at strike two. Now they've looked outward. There's no resources out there. It's strike three. And guess what? They're now prepared for the provision of God. And we're going to see that next week. And I hope you come back to see it. Because it is marvelous. I want to leave you with one last illustration and one last point to consider. When this gets stripped, this area we've looked at today of depending on others, from the bottom of my heart, I believe that that is the worst area to be stripped of. Think about this with me. If you have an impossible circumstance come into your life and you start to look inward, deep down you know you're not up to the demand. Right? And so you might try to escape, but deep down you know there is no escape. You can't run away from whatever it is God's brought into your life. You can pretend, but you can't get away. Ah, but others. Them I can depend on. How do we know that? Because we've been dependent on them all our lives. And when they get stripped away from us, that hurts. Because there is a terrible sense of being left alone. I know many of your situations, many of you I don't, but I know you and I know you're a human being. At least you carry a lot of the characteristics. <laughs> when we get stripped of the outward resources that we depend on, it leaves us alone. Let me give you just a few who allowed me the, and gave me the permission to share. Like a young lady who's raped in high school. Who comes home to tell who? Mom and dad, because that's the ones you can depend on. But mom and dad refuse to talk about it. And so she's alone. And she bears it alone. That hurts. When the young man comes in to share with me about his life and how at a young age, he loses mom and dad and goes through the growing up years without them. The sense of being alone, and it hurts. The young girl who, who lost her mama in the middle of her teenage years, and that's when little girls need mamas most, right? And there's a sense of being alone. When God strips you of others, 
it hurts like nothing else. But the key is you are never alone in Christ. Please understand that. One of the most neglected verses in all the Bible is 1 Corinthians 6.17. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. What does that mean? Maybe that's why we've neglected it. What does it mean? Joined to the Lord, you are one spirit with him. Does that mean you became God? That's heresy. Does it mean God became you? That's pantheism, and that's heresy. What does it mean then? I think this is why God gave us marriage, to teach us about this great truth. When two came together, they became what? One. What does that mean? It meant, Deborah, when you came and married Jerry, everything you brought to the wedding is now whose? Jerry's. And Jerry, everything you brought to the union is now Deborah's. And so he that is joined to the Lord is what? One spirit with him. So everything that you brought to that union is now whose? Jesus's. All your shame, all your guilt, all your weakness, all of your inadequacy. Ah, but everything that is now was Jesus is now whose? That's right. You now have his acceptance, his love, his peace, his righteousness. And you are in a union with him. Which means wherever you go, you are never, ever alone. Amen. Amen. I got a lady who recently wrote me a letter. It's one of the best I ever got. Because she was planning her own death. She hit a goodbye letter in the computer so that ultimately they'd find it. Because she didn't want to leave any guilt. She wanted to explain to the loved ones that it's it's not your fault. She took pictures, final pictures with the kids so they'd have remembrances of mommy. She says, every belief I've ever held in my whole life Concerning my own unworthiness to breathe air on this planet was being replayed and strengthened as I viewed myself and my life not through God's eyes, but through the eyes of others. I have been dead in self-hatred since my earliest memories. And they, the truths of who I am in Christ, didn't apply to this thing inside my body called, and it just shares her name. But, don't you love that? God has dealt with me in a powerful and completely different way than he ever has before. Or maybe it's just that he stripped me, finally, completely, of all my insulation so that I could finally hear him. Frank, why is it that we Christians come to believe that we're not supposed to hurt? We know where to expect tribulations, but I have done nothing but protect myself my whole life. If I did take any chances and risks, it was a grit my teeth, plunge in for a moment, but dash back out and hide, woo, that was close type of deal. But I've learned you cannot trust God until you say yes to hurting. How did I miss that all these years? It would have made so great a difference in my walk during these past couple of decades. But I am a changed person now, thanks to God. And she shares thanks to some counseling, things like that. The path I am walking now has taken a very real, perceptible turn away from the circular dead end I've been wandering on for most of my life, looking for affirmation everywhere but Him. Now, I, have, I know I have so much more to learn about how to live in His affirmation, but it seems that life is too short for all I have to learn. Can you relate to that at all? 
I may fall in another pothole soon, but this pothole is behind me forever. And she writes this, With my will, I will choose to believe that the creator of the universe delights in me, and I choose to accept his view of me and his declaration of my worth in him. I will say yes, Lord, to anything that comes my way because I know he is conforming me to his image. And I will not concentrate my energies any longer in protecting myself or escaping his will, which is his provision, which leads me to his life. I choose to trust his strength to accomplish this, and I will no longer conjure up strategies for healing myself out of my own mind, but I will wait patiently for his timing and his direction in all things. She goes on to say, because all I need is him. That's the lesson of John 6. That's the lesson the disciples are going to see next week. Emptied to be filled. Prepared for his provision. Hope you come back next week. Father, thank you for these marvelous truths that we're seeing. To be honest, truths sometimes we'd rather not learn. But we need to learn them or else we'll just continue to trust others other than you. Father, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you'd open all of our eyes to the incredible Father that you are and the incredible Father that you long to be to us. We would not pray for uneventful lives. But we would ask that in your incredible creativity, you would bring things into our life to teach us about you and all that you long to be to us. We will ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're sending a team to to Mexico now. Tim, would you come down? And all you people that are...